Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. Today, we'll speak with Professor Peter Ellison, co-editor of the Annual Review of Anthropology. Ellison specializes in reproductive ecology, a branch of biological anthropology that looks at human physiology, reproductive hormones, and evolutionary medicine. His work in this field has taken him around the world. Ellison is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Human Biology. He has also taught at Harvard University for nearly 30 years. Professor Ellison, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be with you. Now, you are on sabbatical right now. What have you been doing with your time? Sabbatical is a wonderful institution. Uh, I've been splitting my time between Cambridge, uh, where I've been uh, engaged in reading and uh, writing and analyzing data and working in the lab, and some work in the field, uh, particularly a project that we've started recently in Gambia in West Africa. Um, So those things, together with some conferences, uh, particularly one on evolutionary medicine that I helped organize at the National Academy of Sciences in the spring, have been filling my time. Tell me about your project in Gambia. What are you doing there? This this project is really fun. Uh, it's one that we've engaged in in collaboration with colleagues uh, at the Medical Research Council of the United Kingdom and the uh, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The ecology of Gambia relies still very much on uh, subsistence agriculture. Uh, people there grow uh, millet, Rice, uh, other grains, uh, and herd some some and some domestic animals, uh, and produce virtually all the food that they consume. Um, and as a result uh, of that, interacting with the environment in which they live, which is right on the Sahelian region next to the Sahara, uh, where where there is a very strong seasonality uh, to the environment. There is a strong seasonality to the food supply and the workload that people are subjected to. Um, So uh, folks in this region of the world tend to have a lot to eat. Uh, After the uh, harvests come in, uh, they tend to gain weight during that period. And then six months later, uh, when that food is starting to run out and when the work of the new agricultural season is really uh, increasing dramatically, they tend to lose weight. Uh, so there's a kind of a, a cycle of, of uh, energy availability that they're on that, ha- that affects their physiology. And we've been very interested in how that cycle of energy availability affects uh, their reproductive physiology, and in particular how it affects the fertility of the women uh, and how it affects the, uh, the rate of reproductive maturation in uh, teenagers. So we've, we've started a project where we are trying to measure aspects of reproductive physiology and reproductive maturation, as well as uh, the seasonal shifts in energy expenditure and energy balance that the people are subject to, uh, and try to understand how those two things interact uh, in the in the development of Gambian women. Now, on your lab website, you specifically use the words non-invasive monitoring in describing the kind of work you do. What exactly does that mean, and how does that differ from the way a biologist, say, uh, someone else in the hard sciences would conduct their research? 
It's a great question, Mia. Uh, and I think it's been a, one of the contributions that I think we feel proudest about is in helping to develop uh, non-invasive methods for studying human physiology in the field. The methods that we particularly developed uh, back in the 1980s were methods for measuring hormones, uh, the chemicals that control a lot of the physiological activity in our bodies, to measure those molecules not in blood, but in saliva. Uh, that seems perhaps a little quirky and a little unusual, but if you think about it for a minute, the ability to take a saliva sample from somebody, to get them just to spit in a test tube, uh, is so much less troublesome, so much less painful, so much less disruptive, um, that you can collect those samples more easily and more frequently than you can collect blood samples. Um, so by working out the methods, which were very tricky to enable us to measure uh, hormones in saliva, we had a way to get much finer information than is usually available to a doctor in a hospital, for example, who often has to rely on a single blood sample. We could get uh, saliva samples from people uh, every day for a year and really understand how their bodies responded to shifts like the shifts in energy balance that I was describing for Gambia. Um, to do that tr in a traditional way uh, would require a hospital setting, it would require uh, bringing people to a clinic, uh, trying to get blood samples, trying to do that frequently enough to be able to document these long-term trends, all of which made it practically impossible to do. So the, the, the ability to study very sophisticated physiological questions over long-term studies uh, in the field was a real breakthrough. And all of a sudden, people could, could um, begin to ask questions about human physiology and human ecology that they'd never asked before. Uh, and the answers uh, proved to be fascinating. How has the medical community responded to that kind of research? Uh, it's very interesting. Initially, they were, um, I think, very, uh, what's the right word, skeptical. Uh, I would go to a lot of conferences. I was invited to a lot of conferences on uh, fertility and reproduction and uh, reproductive medicine uh, to present our work. Uh, and the very fact that we were making measurements in saliva was so novel uh, that uh, I think in general, it was met with, um, with as I say, skepticism. Um, people would ask, well, why are the hormones in the saliva in the first place? Uh, and the answer is, the hormones permeate every fluid in your body. You can measure them in almost any fluid you want to uh, collect, and saliva just happened to be a particularly uh, convenient one. Uh, well, um, why don't you measure them in blood? That's what we're used to seeing. We, we don't know how to understand these levels. Uh, well, if you read the papers carefully enough and pay attention, you can, uh, you can understand how those uh, salivary levels are related to the um, blood levels. Uh, but over time, um, that skepticism has faded, uh, and more and more uh, researchers now rely on these methods, and, and to the point where now you can, you can buy kits uh, that uh, some of the um, pharmaceutical companies make specially designed to measure these hormones in saliva. And it's interesting, when we look at those kits and open the, the instructions, we find that the protocols are 
all directly based on the protocols that we developed in the 1980s. So now, now it's no longer controversial. Now it's, now it's quite commonplace. Uh, but I think still more widely used in the behavioral sciences uh, than in clinical medicine. Why is that? I think because behavioral scientists are interested in things that require repeated sampling uh, and that require um, sampling in settings that are not clinical. So a psychologist might be interested in how um, hormones, uh, hormone levels respond to stress or respond to um, psychological tests of various kinds. Uh, economists, now behavioral economists, uh, who do uh, economic games and study how people um, respond and barter with each other are very interested in the way in which physiology interacts with economic decisions. Uh, and so they have begun using some of these techniques. So I think because be behavioral scientists are interested in, in sort of real-time phenomena and in, in changes that take place uh, in settings that can't easily be replicated uh, in a clinic, uh, they find these, these uh, methods very convenient. What are the big picture implications for the kind of work you're doing in reproductive ecology? Well, the big picture, I think, is how does human physiology respond to the world around us? Um, you know, when I was in school, I studied human physiology in a textbook uh, that made it sound as if uh, much of human physiology was just fixed, and particularly reproduction. It was just supposed to work a certain way, and either it was working or it was not working. Either it was either you were healthy or you were sick. And one of the things that we found very early on was that that kind of binary classification of physiology really doesn't fit the real world. Uh, for example, women's ovarian cycles, which we study a great deal, those cycles can look very different under different circumstances, particularly related to energy, like, we're, like the circumstances we're studying in the Gambia. So that when, there is, when a woman has less to eat, when she's losing weight, when she's working or exercising hard, uh, her hormone levels actually drop, and her probability of becoming pregnant goes down. Uh, when she's gaining weight, working less hard, exercising less hard, the reverse happens. The hormone levels go up, and her probability of, of becoming pregnant increases. Um, and so this, this waxing and waning of reproductive function in response to an ecological factor like energy availability is really the, the norm uh, and doesn't indicate that the, there's anything wrong with the woman's physiology. In fact, that's the way uh, natural selection has designed human physiology to work so that when the energy available for reproduction is plentiful, the probability of conception is higher. And when that energy is in short supply, the probability of conception is lower. And we've seen this pattern uh, replicated in population after population, setting after setting. It's not, it's not peculiar to Gambian women or to Argentinian women or to Polish women or to American women. It's, it's a human uh, phenomenon. So we think we're understanding something more basic about how human physiology works. Um, one, one of the questions I often get is, oh, that's fine, but nowadays people control their 
fertility with uh, contraception? Um, do we really need to know that much about how the natural biology of fertility uh, works? And the answer to that is that, well, our reproductive biology is connected to so much else about our uh, health and physiology. So, for example, uh, as hormone levels rise in situations of abundant energy, the risk of reproductive cancer rises. Really? Directly as a consequence of those higher levels of estrogens that women are exposed to and the higher levels of androgens that men are exposed to. So that the, uh, the breast cancer epidemic, for example, that uh, Western nations are undergoing right now, where one out of every eight women uh, can be expected to develop breast cancer in her life, is probably going to be replicated in the rest of the developing world as their lifestyle shifts to come in line with ours. Um, some of my former students have already shown that women who migrate from Bangladesh to London within one generation have hormonal profiles that look like Londoners. Uh, and as that happens, uh, their breast cancer risk, we expect, will rise as well. Now, that's fascinating. I was under the impression that these health issues like breast cancer, for example, would have a negative impact on the reproductive cycle, not the other way around. Yeah, and in fact, they tend to be positively correlated. So, you know, if you think about it, we in the West, if I can isolate us for a minute, grow up faster, uh, grow taller um, than any other populations in the world and than any other populations in human history. Uh, but along with that rapid growth and, and large size uh, come some downsides. Uh, interestingly, one of the downsides may be uh, nearsightedness, uh, believe it or not. Another downside may be um, impacted wisdom teeth. There are all kinds of costs to growing that big and that fast. But one of the, one of the correlates of growing big and fast is having a reproductive system that runs at full tilt, whether we are using it or not. So we may use contraception to control the actual production of offspring, but our reproductive systems are, are uh, churning out hormones at levels that are much, much higher than most populations that we've studied elsewhere in the world. So that all that robust growth and development uh, brings with it robust reproduction, which brings with it uh, costs uh, in terms of the stimulus. The, all these hormones are stimulating breast tissue, for example, to, um, to divide and proliferate. And it's, it's that mitotic stimulus that uh, leads to the higher rates of breast cancer. Now, I lived in the Bay Area for a time, and they would always talk about the breast cancer rates in Marin County, which is a very wealthy area, being sort of off the charts. Is there an argument for the fact that they're so well-to-do? And here in, in uh, Massachusetts, there are, all, there are similar communities, uh, uh, Newton and uh, 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 Wellesley and Weston, which uh, have been identified as having particularly high rates of breast cancer. Well, a, a, an epidemiologist in California named Malcolm Pike, very distinguished man in this field, uh, has said that um, the greatest risk factor for breast cancer is money. Uh, 
and that the wealthier people are, um, it, it depends. But by and large, they then adopt lifestyles that um, promote this energy availability and promote uh, this high rate of physiological function of the reproductive system. Now, as a, as a biological anthropologist, what do you do with this information? Well, I always have to be careful because I'm not a physician. Uh, it's not my position to, to treat individuals, but it is my, uh, my job to try to make this knowledge and understanding uh, more broadly appreciated. So I spent a lot of time going to, to medical conferences. I spent a lot of time speaking to uh, members of the medical community, trying to convince them that the rather static idea of human physiology they've gotten from their textbooks is not only misleading, uh, but in some ways uh, dangerous if it, if it prevents them from identifying some of the real causes of diseases and therefore gets in the way of developing the best strategies for prevention and treatment. Um, most recently, I've, I've joined forces with some colleagues like Stephen Stearns at Yale University and Randolph Nessie at uh, University of Michigan to promote the perspective that sometimes is called evolutionary medicine uh, or Darwinian medicine. And this is simply the perspective of, uh, that we've been talking about, it, trying to understand human physiology uh, not as some static, perfect design, but as the product of uh, millions of years of evolution uh, shaped by natural selection to respond to environmental circumstances in certain ways. Um, that led the three of us and another colleague, uh, Didali Govindaraju, to uh, organize a special colloquium uh, at the National Academy of Sciences last year, uh, jointly sponsored by the Institute of Medicine, the highest uh, honorary organization in the medical community, uh, focused on evolutionary medicine. Uh, and what we tried to do is to showcase some of the very best research and to invite um, members of the academic medical educational establishment. So we had the, the uh, Jeffrey Flyer, the dean of the Harvard Medical School, was at the conference, and uh, representatives of other important institutions. Uh, and we really focused on how to educate doctors, uh, educate medical students, educate pre-medical students uh, in a way that would help them gain this broader perspective on human biology. Um, There's a very, very successful conference, and I think um, we're, we've already started seeing recommendations for changes in the medical college admissions tests and in pre-medical requirements uh, to emphasize training in evolutionary biology and human biology uh, for those that are going on to medical school. What will that look like? Well, I think it would, it would look like a, a broader emphasis on, on, first of all, understanding evolution, how it works, uh, understanding natural selection, the principles behind it, and understanding the human organism in an integrated way in respect to the various environments that it might find itself in and that it has found itself in over the past. You know, there's a tendency um, in clinical medicine to uh, focus on Western populations like ours. Uh, in fact, if you open a, a textbook of 
obstetrics and gynecology and look up the chapter on the menstrual cycle, you will probably find a graph of the hormone levels uh, that were recorded in some women in Boston or London, and uh, it will be represented as the menstrual cycle, the human menstrual cycle. This is how it looks. Uh, without any appreciation that if you measured those hormones in in uh, Zambia or in Nepal or in uh, central China or in uh, uh, Chile, you would get very different profiles. Um, and so that, that appreciation for human variation and for the, the, the range of human environments and human conditions uh, is just absent from medical education. And so this is where anthropology, with its perspective on, on the broad range of human experience, evolutionary biology, with its emphasis on the, the history of that broad range and its, and its impact on the evolving organism, uh, where those perspectives are are very very valuable uh, and absent by and large from the training of of those uh, who who are charged with um, the the public and personal health concerns. I'm curious. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about what this means in the Western world. What kind of impact does this have in the Gambia, for example, or other places that you've done research? Well, there the, the impact can be very different. So in some parts of the world, uh, people are still very concerned about their fertility and what it is that can affects their fertility, uh, both positively and negatively. Um, their access to artificial fertility control or even the acceptability of those kinds of measures in their society may be quite limited. Um, and... And so they may be very concerned. I, I started my career working in a, a region in Central Africa, uh, in what's now the Congo, what was then Zaire, uh, where people had quite low fertility and were very concerned about it. Why was it uh, so low? Why, why is it so hard for them to have children? Uh, and it, it, we could show that it was directly related to the uh, unpredictability of their food supply and, and the sort of perilous... Uh, energetic conditions under which they were living. Now, that, that understanding doesn't solve the problem, but to the extent that they can under, appreciate that, then at least they know where the problem lies and where some of the solutions might lie. Um, in Gambia, I think uh, the issues are, are, are similar, but there I think we're seeing a population that's in transition, uh, that is rapidly modernizing, not as rapidly as some parts of the world, but which where we can expect modernization to, to transform that society within a generation or two. And there the questions are more, well, what will that change do uh, to their biology? And will, they, will their cultural traditions be able to keep up with that kind of biological change? One of the, one of the other places I've been fortunate to work is in northern Argentina with a, a dear colleague Claudia Valegia at the University of Pennsylvania. We've been studying uh, a group known that, as the Toba, a traditional uh, indigenous population uh, that, that were living as hunter-gatherers two generations ago, uh, and now are mostly settled on government um, settlements. Um, and in two generations, the average age at first birth in this population has dropped from about 
22 down to 15. And that's the average age at first birth. So a lot of girls are having their first offspring even younger than 15. Uh, and that, that, that has dramatic consequences for society, shifts of that nature. So being able to understand them, to predict them, to help the people themselves understand what's going on, um, doesn't provide any solutions, doesn't dictate any course of action, but at least helps uh, the information be there so that people can, can uh, use it in whatever way they see fit. Now, your work really bridges the gap between anthropology and the harder sciences, yet you are categorized, at least by annual reviews, as a social scientist. Can you talk a little about the differences and similarities between these fields? Yeah, that's, that's, that's such an interesting question as well, and I think is a, is a question that um, concerns a lot of people in the broad field of anthropology right now. Um, you know, my, my formal title right now is uh, the John Coles Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. So not in an anthropology department. I'm not even in an anthropology department anymore, although two years ago I was. Um, our department uh, has recently split into two entities now. So now there's an anthropology department and a department of human evolutionary biology as a result of a phenomenon that I think has been going on for for uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, let me back up. Anthropology uh, is a venerable discipline. Uh, it was one of the original founding disciplines of the National Academy of Sciences in this uh, country. Uh, it dates back into the 19th century. But it's always been a very broad discipline, encompassing everything from social anthropology, like Margaret Mead, um, to archaeology, the unearthing of uh, prehistoric civilizations, to the study of human evolution and human paleontology, uh, and more recently the study of primate behavior as, our, as, as a model for understanding the evolution of, of humans. Um, and that's, that's really a broad reach, uh, if you think about it. It goes all the way from, from molecular genetics to folklore and religion within one department. Um, for a long time, that's, I think, been perceived as one of the great strengths of anthropology. It's holism, the degree to which it tries to look at human beings in a very integrated, uh, multidimensional way. But as you know, the universe of human knowledge has expanded, uh, these different perspectives have drifted further and further apart, separated by more and more differences in methodology and, uh, and, and history, so that, so that it became uh, more and more difficult for those, for example, at the, at the biological end of the discipline to communicate effectively with those at the more humanistic end of the discipline, and vice versa. That, I think, is just a natural tension and a natural progress of the pursuit of human knowledge. Um, but it has, I think, come to the point where now, at least in some institutions, it seems more rational to formally divide some of these subfields. Uh, that the training that we have to provide our graduate students has become so different. Um, the, the ways in which we 
think about the world are so different that it, it's challenging to try to encompass all of that within a single department. Nevertheless, I think, I think whatever you call it, whether you call it biological anthropology or human evolutionary biology, uh, the, the field that I'm in um, has a special excitement to it precisely because it straddles the boundary between the social sciences and the natural sciences. I and my colleagues have now been formally moved from, we used to report to the, the dean of the social sciences, now we report to the dean of the natural sciences, so we've, we've formally been moved to the other side of that boundary line, uh, at least in terms of the center of gravity of our work. But I think the reach of our work uh, extends to both sides, and that's, that's extremely important. Um, it's very important, as I say, and very exciting now that, that the social sciences, like sociology, economics, psychology, are increasingly uh, drawing paradigms and data from the natural sciences. Um, cognitive sciences no longer are easy to locate uh, with respect to this boundary either. They, they tend to span the social science, uh, natural science, uh, divide as well. So I think um, in addition to the special responsibility we have to try to communicate to lay people and to the general public, we have a special responsibility in my field to try to keep information flowing respectfully and informatively between the social sciences and the natural sciences. Um, it's a tension that I think has been in anthropology for a long time. I think it will continue to uh, uh, stimulate discussion, debate, uh, and hopefully important uh, interactions. I mentioned that I spoke to your colleague, Donald Brennis, uh, recently, and we talked about the in the preface of the annual review of anthropology, the idea of this holism and how the annual review is trying to really acknowledge that and to make the importance of it very clear in the review. Yes, yes, that's that's one of the things that I think uh, the annual review can can do. I think it is the most effective. The annual review of anthropology is the most effective um, voice right now for this kind of holism. Uh, and by holism, I don't mean that everybody agrees on everything, but the engagement, uh, the active intellectual engagement of people uh, from these different perspectives uh, with issues of common interest um, is something that I think. The, the annual review is positioned to support in a way that most other academic journals are not. Most of the academic journals are broken down by subfield. The one or two that, that try to cover the subfields do it in a rather compartmentalized way. Um, but by identifying themes for each volume of the annual review of anthropology, themes that um, collect chapters from the different subfields, all uh, focusing on a general area in common, I think it's one of the ways in which we can help uh, support uh, and generate that kind of uh, interaction between those with very different perspectives. And I think it's, it's something that the, the annual review of anthropology has always done extremely well. The, the editor before Don and I, um, Bill Durham, I think was particularly uh, adept at his ability to draw in perspectives uh, from the different subfields and get them focused on issues of common concern. And that's a tradition that we hope to, hope to sustain. 
Well, Professor Ellison, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Nia Lobel. Thanks for listening.